0: You want Philly food? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do
1: it. Let's do it. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. The podcast where prominent figures in sports, talk about how sport has impacted the journey of
0: their lives.
1: Philly special. Ready? Welcome everybody to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno, episode 21. Today's guest is senior writer and reporter of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Valor Football Club. Please welcome Ed Tate. Ed, thanks so much for being on today's episode. It's a great pleasure to have you here on the show today.
0: I appreciate you inviting me on. Thanks a lot, man. So, Ed, you have a resume
1: that maybe doesn't need an introduction, but let's go through it for, for all intents and purposes. Having wrote for the Winnipeg Sun for many years, spent a year in Saskatoon and then wrote for the free press. And now with our hometown, Winnipeg Blue Bombers and Valor, what is of all the places you've been in your career, what has been, I guess, the most enjoyable few years within a certain, within a certain role? Is it, is it tough to, to nail one down or has it just been all great?
0: Yeah, I would, I would lean on the latter. It's, it's been all great because they've all been different experiences, right? When I was, uh, first started out, it was just great to have a job in the industry. And so those are my first years at the Sun. And it was um, spectacular. I got to do a lot of different things got, you know, your first beat and your first road trip and all those things. And then uh, I got the chance to go to Saskatoon to be a columnist for a year. Um, And that was a lot of fun to try a different market and, and to kind of cut your teeth in that aspect of writing. And then Almost a year after I had left, the son called me back and said, would you come back to be a columnist? So that was fun. Then uh, the Free Press was, um, I guess, uh, Jesus, like a 17-year run. So that was a lot of fun. Got to do a lot of different things with them. And then the transition to the Bombers has been spectacular to be able to uh, to chronicle all the things that have happened. And their slow build to the Great Cup last year was a, was one of the most memorable experiences of my quote unquote career and then even the startup of Valor through their uh, first season then even into the island games this year has been a lot of fun there's some great people with them too so uh, you know I'll be cliche and say there there shouldn't be a bad day in this industry I mean we've all had them but um, I've had a lot of fun man and it's been a pleasure
1: So let's specifically focus on the the role that you've had with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and kind of tying it into the earlier parts of your career. So you've been in the the role as the senior writer reporter for the Winnipeg Football Club since 2016. So at the beginning of Winnipeg's apex towards the Great Cup, so when they really started building. But you've been in the industry since just before the Bombers won their previous Great Cup. How weird was it to to kind of look back and analyze all the work you've done. And right when you started working for Winnipeg, that was closer to the time that they finally
0: won the great cup. What was that whole experience like? Yeah. So uh, my first year covering the bombers uh, at the sun was 1990. The last time they had won the great cup. And so I'm just a young punk thrown onto the beat and uh, had a blast doing it. And remember back then, they had won in 84. They were really good all through the late 80s. They won in 90, 91. They were in the, the division final, 92, 93. They lose in the great cup, 94. Um, they lost in the division final again. So they were really good. And I was covering these, basically this should have been a dynasty. And then it went real dark for a long time. And so when you're the beat guy, um, you know, it's it's fun to, to see your team at the Great Cup and to be able to chronicle it because so many people are following it. But it, it was bad for a long time. And at the end of the millennium, the team was in you know financial dire straits and and then again had some good runs at the beginning of the 2000s, but then it went dark again. Um and so uh I'll tell you what, it the run last November to the Great Cup for a writer whether you work for the team or not, was just spectacular. It was so much fun, so many storylines. Um, and then to be there when I, I went down to the sidelines as the time was uh, ticking off on the Great Cup Sunday to do my job, to do interviews. But uh, I mean, players and staff are grabbing you and hugging you and you still got to kind of separate yourself to go get your interviews. But that's a very, very memorable moment for me in the, I guess, 33 years I've been doing this.
1: It's. I find it so fascinating to look back on the history of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, especially in and around that time range. Uh, because when you look at the 80s, you know, between the 60s and the 80s, that was a dark, dark stretch for the club as well. And then when they finally did it in 84, it was a big deal. And then 88 was the, was the close one. And then 90 was, there was so much fanfare after a huge blowout, one of the biggest in Great Cup history. I think the biggest, I don't know if there's been a, one bigger than that,
0: I don't think so. Yeah.
1: And then you talk about after all the close calls they had until about 96. And then that game for, for those who may not understand the, or know the history of that time period, the bombers had lost the worst playoff game in the club history and league history against Edmonton. And it was, uh, that game was, I guess, a bit of a, just a, a damper on what happened with the club. And, and so, in those moments, because now you can look back and reflect and say, Oh, it was great. Like we made it through, but as a beat reporter, how difficult is it to, to really make like, to make a lot of fun with the job that you have to do, knowing that a lot of people in the, around the organization aren't really that happy or their spirits aren't up.
0: That's a good point. You know um, that 68, seven game you mentioned, which was the worst playoff loss, in CFO history. That was Cal Murphy's last game. So it was really the end of an era. Um, When I was a beat guy, I always thought the best team to cover for a writer was a team that was 500 because the teams that are really dominant, the story is the same every week and the players kind of, they, you know, they get on their high horse and they don't need the media or they don't want to talk to the media as much. And they're just rolling. Right. And the teams that stink, when you're covering a team that's three and 10 and it's October, I mean, how do you make that interesting for your readers in in the paper or on a website, right? Because people have given up. They've, they don't want to read anymore. So it's your job to, to make it interesting to come up with different angles. So um, it, it's been uh, really wild to, to experience all of that. I mean, I, some of the people that have covered the Calgary Stampeders in the last few years, it's the same story every season until, last year when the Bombers knocked them out, but they've been dominant for so long that could get old, but um, it's been, yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun to do all different kinds of things, to cover teams that are bad, to cover teams that are dominant, to, to cover teams that end up just coming short, that were supposed to win, but, you know, through it all, no matter what you do, there's, there's readers that get mad. You're too hard on them. You're too soft on them. And, you know, it was the same thing when I was doing the jets when they came back, to the NHL it's just people um, you know you're trying to serve so many different people that make up your audience there's the people that want every analytic that you can give them in hockey and then there's the people that don't know uh, you know what the you know what the name of the backup goalie is so you know there's people that want to know who's on the second unit of the penalty kill and then there's there's others that you're writing for that don't know who the second line center is so it's a it's always been a balancing act but it's fun to, to have had variety to cover in that way. So you're a, you're, a, like,
1: you're a Winnipeg guy yourself?
0: Born here, grew up all over the place though, man. Yeah, and didn't come back here until I went to the uh, University of Manitoba when I was 18. So then you lived all over the place and now having been back in Winnipeg
1: for many years, if you look at some of the other places you would have lived that you've lived, Would you say that Winnipeg has been one of the best places that you could be covering sports? Or would you say that there's maybe more interesting beats that you've come across or people you've had interactions with who cover beats from across Canada?
0: You know, that's a real good question. I hadn't thought of it, but uh, I lived in Halifax for a while. And my cousin is the athletic director at St. Francis Xavier University in, in Antigonish. And I always like how in that market, university sports matter so much. It's their Toronto Maple Leafs, their Montreal Canadiens. And it's really cool to be in a market that where the university sports matter. So, you know, that's, that's neat. Um, you know, I lived in Minneapolis for a while, but I was just a little kid. Um, but it, it, as a huge Montreal Expos fan growing up, it, it would be neat to it be in a market that has the NBA or Major League Baseball but I'll tell you what, as a Winnipeg guy, being able to cover, you know, a bomber Grey Cup win, being able to, to cover the, the return of the Jets, um, I got to cover that uh, famous 1990 game where Dave Ellett scored in double overtime. Things like that, to me, those are real special as a Winnipeg guy. And, and you know, I cover the Winnipeg Fury and now Valor, lots of different uh, you know, university sports, high school sports, been all over doing different things, boxing in Vegas. Um, but it, it's still writing about the Winnipeg teams and the Winnipeg athletes that matters most to me. And I think that's because deep down, I know I'm, this is where I'm from and you know, it, it's still special. I, you know, I, I get really angry still when people make fun of Winnipeg and it, it because I, I love it here and you, I think you got to live here to get it. Um, uh, so writing about Winnipeg athletes and Winnipeg teams is still real special for me so on that same note then was there an extra special
1: feeling of pride and joy when seeing Nick Dembski and andrew Harris be a part of the success of this year's great Cup winning team
0: absolutely I mean that's what makes that this whole story so um intriguing right because uh over the years there's been always been you know, at least one or two Winnipeg guys on the bomber roster. You know, when I first started, Chris Walby was the star and, you know, he's an icon as we all know. And then, uh, you know, Wade Miller was on the team when I, uh, when he first broke in, I was covering the team Um, and there's been various levels of Winnipeg guys, but you know, for the great cup to happen and for that many, for Nick Dembski and Andrew Harris, Jeff Gray didn't dress, but played an important role you know, Brady Oliveira was hurt, but he's on the team. Thomas Miles, you know, there's a real strong Winnipeg element on that team that played major contributions in winning it. And to be able to to talk to those guys, uh, I remember watching the Grey Cup and having the TSN feed in my ears as I was watching and writing, so I didn't miss anything. And Oak Park High School got a lot of love on that broadcast on the TSN. And I went down to talk to Nick Dembski in the as all the confetti's falling. And I mentioned to him, hey, that Oak Park got a lot of love on the broadcast and he's just, he's loving it. But one of his buddies had come out of the crowd. And I think that guy had started drinking on Saturday because uh, he's yelling, Oak Park, Oak Park. But it was just a cool moment. Again, it, it comes back to writing about Winnipeg athletes in, in a big moment. And Nick Dembski had a great playoff run, as did Andrew Harris.
1: So, I mean, th- this question may have been something that you've reflected on before, but going back to Winnipeg's 2019 Great Cup run, after they the acquisition for Kalaros was made, did you think in your wildest dreams that them being led to the Great Cup by him was anything in the realm of
0: possibility? No, look, let's be honest. I, I guess it was an outside chance, right? Because, and it did happen. So but when they made the trade, like, like everybody else you're thinking, well, is he even healthy, right? He hadn't played since the first game. Um, Chris Strevler had been banged up uh, before uh, Zach Caleros got his first start. So it, it just felt like an insurance policy move, didn't it? I mean, I don't think anybody predicted that it would unfold as it did, um but I even talked to Zach Caleros last week for a project I'm working on and um I don't think he expected it either but it, it's funny how um with almost every day that he was in the building um there's something about him and I think it's why the team hits their wagon to him that people started to kind of gravitate to him and think oh this guy still got it he still got uh, he still knows what he's doing and um we saw that build in front of our very eyes, right? I mean, that playoff run is as memorable as you'll ever get in the CFL. And especially with a lot of analogies, I remember
1: people making between this team and then the team that won in 90 with all the quarterbacks that went down. It, it almost seems as if in a way history does kind of repeat itself, but sometimes it doesn't because I remember analyzing before the playoff run had happened all the years and the rankings of the teams that have won the great cup and said, no bomber team who's ever played in the West finished who, if they finished out of second had ever went to the great cup when they'd finished yeah. third in the West, they'd never done it. So I was like, right. there's no way that they'll do it now. But since you were able to witness a lot of that, those prior years and those teams, did you start to see some analogies and, and kind of make those comparisons in your
0: head as, as they started to pick up steam? Yeah, a little bit, Matias, because uh, there are some comparisons. You make a good point about that 1990 team, because, Uh, the 90 quarterback was Tom Burgess and they didn't trade for him until Canada day at the time that was near the end of training camp. So that was a real good team that needed a quarterback and they went out and made a trade to get him. So the bombers are a real good team that needed a quarterback at the time. They make a trade to go out and get the guy that's in a way was the the missing piece. Um, That, that team remember was nine and two for a while. And, and then Matt Nichols got hurt. So it was a good football team. Uh, The wheels had come off. It had lost its way a little bit. Um, And then Chris Trevler was playing hurt. So they just didn't want to be one hit away from Sean McGuire, as much as I think they have a lot of faith in him as a quarterback going forward. Uh, And, and again, it, it felt like a move that was made as an insurance policy. Well, we better have a guy just in case, and then, again, the story that unfolded after that was pretty amazing. And it, um, I talked to Nick Taylor today, actually, from the secondary. Some other things that happened during the year, too, that in hindsight, you forget about how important they were. Uh, that one side of the secondary that had played so well in the, in the playoffs was Nick Taylor and Mercy Maston, mm-hmm. And two guys who were on the CFL scrap heap and were picked up in August. Nobody else wanted them. And they end up starting in the Great Cup and play really well. Uh, those are the kind of things that maybe have to come together for a storybook finish. But uh, again, it's what made uh, last November so compelling to me. And I remember when watching
1: the West semifinal final uh, downstairs in my house and, and, you know, like the interception and, you know, and then in the second interception and just starting to think like, wait, like, I don't remember these guys being on the team for that long. Like where <laughs> do they come from? And then you're starting to have to backtrack and look up who, right. where they came from. And, and I really think seeing that, when I saw that game, because the, the game that Kolaris played in Winnipeg where they won on the game when they field goal, people were saying it was luck. It was luck, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. And on my radio show at the time, I had predicted, and you can go ask my co-host who said, no, I think this, this means something. The Bombers will take this and run with it. Because of all the years that i had been following Winnipeg very closely since about 2009 or 2010, in the latter half of the decade, it always seems that the Bombers were the team that started strong and finished weak or would finish flat. And it was just, it seemed to be the same tale over and over the 2016. They were so close. And then the indecision between 61 yards versus 34 and then 2017 being down and then having to play catch up. And then the incomplete pass on third down that basically sealed their, their time management. And then 2018, the West final that just seems to get away from them. And then when we were in the same position, I was thinking, is there, like, is this team really going to do this? And I think, especially from that perspective, the Montreal game to me was just almost seemed like a backbreaker. I was in the Bison's locker room with all the coaches. And as soon as they threw the touchdown pass, I said, when's this team going to get a break? Right. And it, it seemed impossible at that point. I was like, they're destined for failure. Cause after the Argos game and then this, it just seemed lost. So when you covered that game as a beat reporter, the Argos game where they blew a huge lead and especially the Montreal game when with Chris Traveler, you thought that they could do it. What was the sentiment around the locker room and what were your personal thoughts on where you thought the dire- or on where the direction of the team was headed after a-, a devastating loss?
0: Yeah, I know where you're going with this because those two losses that you mentioned against Toronto, and Montreal, those were the two biggest blown leads in franchise history. They still rank now one and two. So, you, you know, over the, over the years, you start to think, man, is this franchise cursed or what's going on here? Like, I have mean, seeing field goals attempts hit the uprights, I've, you know, quarterbacks get hurt. Like Matt Nichols, you mentioned uh, 2017, he, he was, was coming off that injury pretty banged up. 2018, he was banged up and still played. Um, but when they won that game in Calgary and Winnipeg gets slapped around in Calgary all the time, right? It's been going back since I first started covering the team, even then some of those really good teams would go into Calgary and lose. I don't know why it was, but they just did. And so it's, it really was, I wrote at the time, it was like slaying a dragon for this team. And it really was because you got Bo Levi Mitchell who hardly ever loses a game. There's just a swagger about him. And they intercepted him three times. Um, When you go down to the locker room after that, there's some guys that are all new to this, like Nick, Nick Taylor and Mercy Masson who we referenced that were, you know, had played in Calgary before, but not with Winnipeg. And But some of the guys that had been around it and had it handed to them over the years as a bomber in Calgary, you could see that they were pretty pumped up about things. But I also remember there was some sort of sense of resolve or resilience about that team because it was very subdued. So they, you know, they slay a dragon. You'd think it'd be crazy in there, but it wasn't. It, it was celebratory, but kind of muted. And then I can remember talking to Jamarcus Hardrick, and he said, I think he was answering, talking to me as, and also to the rest of the room, because he got kind of loud. And he said, Yeah, this is big, but, and then this is when he got loud. He said, We didn't come here to win one playoff game. This is just the start. If anybody's satisfied with just winning the West semifinal, then I, I don't want to line up with you on next Sunday. And so there was this, still a resolve of, uh, we've got to keep going here. And then, you know. I mentioned kind of whether this team was cursed the next week they go into Saskatchewan and blow, it looked like they're going to blow a lead and that, but pass that goes through Marcus's sales hands sets up that final play. And then they, the pass from Cody Fajardo hits the upright. Maybe finally the, the, the curse has been reversed, so to speak. And then I'll tell you what great cup week in, in Calgary everybody's talking about how awesome Hamilton is. And I think um, the Bombers players took that and used it as fuel. Um, and there was no, there wasn't any bulletin board material that came out that week, but there was that you could just see it sense it building. And early on in that first quarter, when they put their foot on the Cat's throat, you could see, wow, this is the best game they've played in the biggest game of the year. So it, it again, I keep repeating myself, man, but it, it was pretty uh, it was pretty amazing what happened from you mentioned that last game against Calgary, the last regular season game, Zach Kalaros' first start. That team just looked dramatically different in the next four or five weeks than it did in the four or five weeks leading up to that.
1: I've I've said this, I think probably 80 times since since last November. That the the games that they won, that four-game stretch for Kalaros – were they played the toughest teams in the CFL in the toughest venues to play in the CFL and won them all in a convincing fashion. And that was one of the things that just stood out to me. And I remember I was talking with my friends, deliberating, because I wanted to create a video as a tribute to, you know, the best bomber quarterbacks that we've seen since 2000s. And one of my friends was saying is that Colorado should be up there. I was like, no, man, like he doesn't play enough games. What do you mean? And then he's like, no, 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 no. Think about it. The four games that he's won are more, are more important than any four-game stretch I've ever seen any quarterback win in Bomber history. And then it really started to dawn on me because when you look back at the West final, I was there and very fortunate to have been able to have been there with one of my close friends who convinced me to go like last minute. And cool. we went there and right out of the gate, you could just see it. And I'm sure you, could, you would agree with this. There was just a sense of fearlessness in Kolaros and the rest of the offense. They weren't like, Oh, we're just going to lean on Andrew Harris and just hope that he carries a load like the 2018 West, uh, West semifinal. They were throwing right out of the gate. And it wasn't until their seventh play that they finally handed off. And then the deep shot to Dembski that was called offside, they still went deep the next play. And that was such a, was such a r- relieving feeling to see that because in Saskatchewan, and you can attest, this is probably better than anyone when, when they get the countdown going before kickoff and you feel the noise, they don't stop. Even if you throw a deep pass, they'll be quiet and then they'll get back and uh, they'll get back up and they'll be super, super loud. What was it feeling like being in Regina and witnessing a, the first Prairie final since 1972 and b seeing the lead build. And then just a game of chess for the next 50 minutes.
0: Yeah. You know, you've painted a pretty good picture of what it was like going into there. Um, again so the Bombers had played the week before and beaten slayed the dragon beaten Calgary Saskatchewan had the week off because they were first Cody Fajardo story remember everybody was wondering about how healthy he was going to be but man they were I don't want I don't want to say cocky because that's that's inaccurate but they were very very confident and their fan base was very very confident so I think the Bombers like playing kind of the heel a little bit you know like the wrestling heel you go into the other guys uh barn and you and you knock them off it's a it's a real good storyline and what you mentioned about Caleros too was is very true they took their deep shots the play that I remember and I talked to him about this last week remember the Bombers are backed up to their own own goal line and he found uh, Darvin Adams down the sideline for a 63 yard pass I think it was but Zach also took a late shot on there where someone got Adam down at his knees and you know, anytime Caleros gets hurt now or hit, you think, well, is that dirty? Because it's been sort of his own curse, right? He's taken some shots that haven't been fair that have taken him out. But he got, it was a nasty shot and he was slow getting up, but he finished. And I think that was sort of the the, the same trademark of that whole team. They were going to take some punches, but they were going to give some right back. And um, that game was um a defensive masterpiece you know for both teams played really well defensively and the the way the defense played in that Calgary win built into the game in Regina and then again built into the game in the Grey Cup and one of the people I really felt for the most when the Bombers won the Grey Cup was Richie Hall because let's face it in my time in Winnipeg and my time with the club he's been kind of a pin cushion right people have been uh, all over him for the defense, stinking, this and that. But uh, as much as we talk about Zach Caleros and Andrew Harris and some of the amazing plays offensively, Justin Medlock kicked six field goals in the Great Cup. That run is as much about the defense as anything else. That What they did in those three games in the playoffs defensively was astonishing.
1: Absolutely. And, and even going back to the West semifinal, like how many times have you seen – in Bolivia Mitchell's entire career, him throw three interceptions or more.
0: Right, right, exactly. I, again, I talked to Nick Taylor, and he, and he said um, he mentioned their game plan that uh, they just had a real good feel for it, and and then momentum kind of builds. And one of the weird sights and from that game for me is seeing the frustration of Bo Levi Mitchell, and he's he didn't point fingers, but he was darn close to pointing fingers at his receiving core. I just think Winnipeg got into his head a little bit, and he's the kind of guy we all know his numbers that uh, he's not used to losing. And so, uh, when and for it to happen in a playoff game, for him to play his worst game, uh, that wasn't Bo by Mitchell just missing re- open receivers or receivers running bad routes. That was a, a bomber defensive game plan that had him completely flummoxed. And again, Richie Hall deserves a lot of credit for that one absolutely
1: and like they say defense wins championships right so absolutely if you think about the way that they perform in the great cup how do they start the momentum off interception brandon alexander right out of the gate and then how do they keep going right they they punched it in and then and then uh you know willie jefferson the strip sack like because he was called back on the first one and the second one he goes and and then he finally got it because that's the i think people will maybe start to forget about that it'll fade i think as time goes on because people will just remember that you know now Adam hill has got it. Like as soon as like right. Chris Cusper said, and he picks it up. And, and then to me, I think the one moment that I'm not going to say made me know that they were going to win because it was super early on, but I have nightmares still to this day of watching as a grade 10 student in 2011, the Bombers playing the Lions and seeing Andrew Harris run for 15 yards down the right hash and seeing him punch it in was just yeah. such a, it was, it was such a, like, I felt stabbed in the sternum as a bomber fan because he was the hero for the lions against his native town. And then once he did the exact same run, the exact same direction against Hamilton, that's when I knew that it was like LeBron coming back to Cleveland and win the finals. Like, okay, now it is, is come full circle. And now it is acceptable. You know, this is like the completion of, of the, the circle of life. And, and so many moments that people are going to remember Chris Trevler's pass through the uprights, but it was all the defense that got them into that position, right? The bombers kicked six field goals. If Hamilton picked up offensive momentum, like it would have been a game if it wasn't for, you know, Mike Jones on Mike Jones breaking up the pass. If he caught that you're down mm-hmm. at the two, you punched it in, you're down 10 points. So yes. the way the defense stepped up big time is a, is a great point that you bring up about Richie Hall, not getting the credit he deserves after the many years that people have used him as a a scapegoat?
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that years from now, like you said, we'll look back at that game, and the Bombers just dominated. It's so old school, but they dominated the line of scrimmage because they were able to do whatever they wanted offensively by pounding it. Uh, They kept Caleros upright. You know, they did all the trickery stuff with the Paula Police using Strubler as a receiver. And he threw a you know the touchdown pass to Andrew that you mentioned. But it was basically pretty the bombers O-line calls it bully ball because you get in the trenches up front and you just push people around. And that's what they did on offense. And that performance by the defense, but the front seven in particular, you mentioned uh, Big Hill and Kyrie Wilson uh, in a kind of an underrated role had a f- phenomenal game in the Great Cup. But Jackson Jeff Code and Willie Jefferson, those guys up front, Drake Nevis had a sack. Jake Thomas was spectacular. Like that really was old school. And it, you know, I, I loved it. I, I mean, sometimes those 38-36 games are are just awesome. But when you see two teams just kind of going at it like that, it's I'm a boxing guy too. And it's like being in the middle of this, of this, of the ring and they're just throwing punches at each other. And the bombers landed a lot of punches that Sunday.
1: Absolutely. I love that you mentioned the uh, Jeff code and, and Jefferson because they were, I honestly think in my, in my honest opinion, Willie Jefferson was the X factor in the 2019 bombers. Chris Trevor was for the offense, but you look at the 2018 team, 2019, there's something about Willie Jefferson. That's just so infectious about his, his charisma, his dominance, his style of play. It's so deeply rooted in the culture of a team when he arrives that you know when he gets going the defense almost seems unstoppable because with you know when he was on the riders him and charleston hughes like they just seemed impossible to stop now mind you it didn't cover for the rest of the team but i think that he was almost not i'm not going to say the key piece that pushed him over the edge but he was the person that put them in position to just gently fall over the edge and then Chris playing in the duo, in the two-headed monster role that he had as the backup and as the, as the kind of gadget guy was the perfect combo, I think,
0: to really seal it all together. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because we rewind to free agency when it first started before Willie signed in Winnipeg. And at the time, remember, the Bombers, their number one target was receivers. And so they had looked at Brian Burnham. They had looked – they thought they were going to get um, – Darrell Walker for a while there and, and um, they looked at Greg Ellingson and when they struck out on all these guys I'm thinking oh here we go like it's a it's a major need they're going to have to find somebody from the U.S. college scouting system or their scouts from the states that maybe someone that's been to the NFL to step in and all of a sudden it, it's almost like their uh, their goal change or their their target change because they said well maybe we should try to get Willie Jefferson and um, it happened real quick. I can tell you that. Um, and when they got him, you think, okay, this, I mean, he's the best defensive lineman in the league. I think and Charleston Hughes would argue that, but, uh, and when he came, you're right. He was a difference maker. He was an X factor on that defense. Cause we saw it at the beginning of the year, it took him a couple games to get used to the defense, but he started making plays in that Ottawa game in particular That was the. How about this? That smoke Winnipeg or come on down to Winnipeg, you know. Line. And then from there, he just. It was rare where he wasn't making an impact. He had a couple games where he didn't have a stat, which is was unusual. But, I think he made everybody around him better. And it's a different Willie Jefferson. When I had a chance to talk to him a few times down the stretch last year, especially when we had a big long sit down before he won the, the most outstanding defensive player award. And he talked about how he had matured because, you know, he had some troubles in college. And I think that was uh, affected his get, maybe getting an NFL look at the time, but he's, you know, a, a husband and a father now. And I think he really matured and he's just having fun out there. And it shows, and it, you're right. The, the right word to use is infectious. And uh, his personality rubs off on the rest of them. And on that day, man, the, the way he played and the way Jackson Jeffcoat was coming from the other side, they were unstoppable.
1: And I don't think honestly, like, it's, it's comparable that defensive performance to the likes of the 90 team that had,
0: mm-hmm. I think
1: I think it was Greg Battle, I think he had three interceptions or two interceptions or something crazy for those who are not, have, are not old enough to have witnessed the 1990 dominant performance by the defense in the great Cup against the Eskimos. The this, this storyline was, it was like, oh, Tracy Ham you know, you got to contain him. And they're concerned about how he's going to perform. And it almost seemed like Tracy Ham was a non-factor because of how well that legendary, and I can't even stress legendary defense played, especially the front seven. It almost seems like they're, they're one in the same, but a bit different because those eight yeah. teams
0: were built around defense. You know, you're, you're back on uh, hammering away on that analogy, comparing the 90 team in a lot of ways to this 2019 team. And it's very true that 90 great cup um, the Bombers were 12 and six that year but had and had given up way fewer points than anybody else but they are also the lowest scoring offense in the CFL that season so and everybody loves offense right and Edmonton had Tracy Ham, as you mentioned and they could score like crazy and so there are a lot of people picking Edmonton to win that game and yet Uh, Greg Battle, Tyrone Jones, James West, that you look at that defense now and look at how many guys are in the Bomber Hall of Fame or the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. It's astonishing. You know, you have Rod Hill and Les Brown on the corners. But again, the comparisons to how that team won and how this 2019 team won are really remarkable because, again, make a trade for a quarterback, backbone is defense kind of an underdog even though you have you know you put up some good numbers into the into the championship game and then you kick the snot out of your opponent it's the same thing that happened last November as happened in 1990 it really is a cool comparison
1: absolutely and and one of the things i think that that makes and obviously you know like we're we're picking like we're splitting hairs here at this point because the bombers are great cup champions no matter whether there was no season or not but but when I grew up as a kid, cause I was born in 96. So right in the time that I first started watching the bombers, you know, Milt Stiegel and Terrence Edwards and Kevin Glenn, like that was the big deal. And I look back and reflect. And obviously the storyline of 2019 wouldn't have been what it was without all the years of, of heartache and pain, but right. there's kind of a, and, I'm, and maybe you, you may, may agree on this, but do you think there's a bit of a, I wish that, you know, if we could change history that, the 2017 would have won or the 2001 team or you know Milt Steagall, he deserved a ring with the Bombers is there a bit of that that um, bittersweet feeling as a beat reporter seeing some of the players that you would argue are some of the best in franchise history but
0: didn't get to achieve that feat yeah I know where you're going with that it's a it's a good question and I hadn't really thought about it before but I think what made the 2019 great cup so special was that it was the end of the drought, right? And that, that's why the, there was so much passion at the parade and, and it, why it still means so much to so many people, but also it does um, kind of stick in your craw a little bit that, you know, so from about 2000 on, we're talking about a team that had Milt Stiegel, the greatest receiver in CFO history, Charles Roberts, the leading rusher in bomber history, Doug Brown, one of the greatest Canadians in the bombers and the Canadian football hall of fame. None of those guys have a championship. They had a couple cracks at it in 01 and 07, but it seems kind of not unfair, but it just seems wrong in a way that some of the franchise great players through some great times there in the early 2000s don't have anything to show for it. Uh, and then this 2019 team is the one that that ends the drought. I can remember because you mentioned the 84 team that ended a drought that had dated back to 1962. And so the 90 team again early 90s had been in their finals or the division finals of the great cup and then the wheels came off a little bit so even in 2001 we were talking about the drought at the time it was only 10 11 years and then it just kept growing and growing and growing and every year after that every season every training camp started with a reference to the drought and so it would have been pretty cool to see a Milt Stegall win a gray cup or a Charles Roberts or Doug Brown or all those guys that were part of those teams. Um, but it's just, that's, that's not how it works out sometimes, right? That's why we love sports because uh, the predicted storyline doesn't always turn out. And look, let's face it. We, we go back to what we are just talking about and that 2019 team, when the playoffs started with Winnipeg, there wasn't anybody really that was picking Winnipeg to win the gray as a third place club, as you said. Yeah,
1: and, and to, to go back to you mentioning the, some of those players like Roberts and Stegel and Doug Brown, in particular on the episode I had on my show with Brett McNeil, he talked about right. you know him being the veteran at the end of his career and Doug Brown being the rookie, getting a sack on the very first play for the Bombers defense against the Stamps, and then yep. the rest of the game didn't get one. And in, he's like, and, t- he, and Brett was talking about it was like in 2011, you know, the, t- the person I felt the most for was Doug Brown. Cause that was the last year he played and you could see the look on his face, right? this was the third great cup. He was a rookie and then in the middle and then a veteran and it still didn't happen. And it's just, it's so unfortunate, but obviously that's, that's the way that the storylines build. Right. And I'm sure for Hamilton, you look at, you know, Danny McManus having been the last quarterback to lead them to the great cup in 1999 and and then the next time that they win the great cup, like they'll be having their story and they'll be having their, their moment of, of joy and relief because they've been through probably at this point, more heartache than Winnipeg fans can now remember because they have the of the longest active drought.
0: Right. You know, one of the hardest things as a beat guy is to go into the great cup, losing teams dressing room after the game and that 01 team, was 14 and four. That's probably the, one of the best bomber teams I've ever seen, and they get upset by an eight and ten team. So you're in the dressing room, and Troy Westwood's there, and he has he struggled that day, and you're talking to Milt and and you know some of the guys that have been around Brett McNeil, and there's frustration. The 2007 team, you know, Kevin Glenn gets hurt. It's Ryan Dinwiddie gets thrown in, but you're trying. I don't. I don't think uh, after 07, I don't think Milt did interviews right after the game because he was so distraught that 2011 team i was actually covering hockey then but was at the great cup game and brought my family out and uh doug brown i talked to doug brown the day before the game the final walkthrough had happened at bc place i had my two boys with me they were younger then and just walked out to talk to him because i had covered doug for 10 years at this point and uh we were—I don't want to say we were friends, but we got along real well. And you know, you could see he was—he was pretty uh, keen on getting it done. And he knew this was going to be his last game. And so, to go to—you to, know—to experience that defeat and know it's your last game and that you don't have a ring, man, can you imagine the heartache? Now, some of these guys have got the personal accolades afterwards, right? They get inducted into a Hall of Fame or or, or that sort of thing but it's just not the same, right? When you play team sports, it's that moment when you're on the field and the confetti's coming down or you're slurping champagne out of the great cup. That's what resonates more than anything. And so I, I, I kind of feel for those guys that got robbed of that experience.
1: Absolutely. And, and especially the, the way you, you portrayed that with Doug, it's, it's such a, it's such a tough, tough mm-hmm. pill to swallow for sure, because, you know, Getting into into the Hall of Fame is obviously a great achievement, but it is team sports, and it is always about the team. and And I think, especially as a as a fan of the Bombers for a long time, Milt Stegels pregame video that was played on TSN made me feel super emotional. I remember waking up the morning the Great Cup and w- like watching those like Great Cup essays that they made, right. and like just there was tears coming out of my eyes. But I wasn't I wasn't saying anything. I was just my face was like stone cold and because I knew what the team had been through and there was just something that felt different, but especially when I heard, heard it from Milt, it was just so hard because, you know, as Bomber fans may, or I guess may not want to remember the, the look on his face when the camera was trying to zoom in on him on the bench, mm-hmm. when, when uh, Kerry Joseph was taking a knee with less than 40 seconds left, you know, him doing the wave away was just one of the hardest things I've ever seen on, on television from the, from a Bombers game, because you know, that, of all the great cups that they had lost before, after 90, 2007, people could argue was the hardest one to watch because yeah. in Saskatchewan, there's no guarantee that they may ever line up to play them in a great cup ever again. So it's almost like Saskatchewan fans can hang over their head, hey, look yeah. what we got. You know, <laughs> when we played in the great cup the one time ever, we won. So, yeah. Aha. Yeah.
0: You know, just kind of taken back to 2019 when you were talking about that now, I, I, I was thinking about the other things that have made this special and i we all knew that when the drought ended it would end hopefully in our lifetimes um (laughs) we knew it would be a special moment but i didn't think it it, it's it's bigger than i thought it would be like i knew it would be big because the drought was so long but when you were at uh, when you're at the parade and you see people you know they're busting out stuff from the 80s their their bomber gear or their you know and then some of the stories we heard afterwards of people that uh you know, uh, took some stuff and put, t- took it to their, their parents gravestone, like a, a bomber hat and put it on their, on their tombstone, or people that had taken chunks of the, 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 the rubberized pebble from the turf and um, you know, people just crying people like, like the, the reaction I saw to people to the Grey Cup when it was paraded about, we went to Brandon in January to a Wheat Kings game and brought the, the Grey Cup and people were just like, it, it's a, it's funny how it is this inanimate object that people want to be around it. And it's got this magical power. Um, I didn't think that the the reaction would be as wild as it's been. And, and again, that's sort of why you get a little bit down at this time of year that when the CFL isn't playing right now, because it would be just fun to see if the bombers could repeat. And if they couldn't, we could still say, well, we have 2019 to lean on, right? Of course. And I think that's, you know,
1: leading into my next point, it, it is really a bummer that we don't have CFO football this year, obviously for unfortunate reasons, but I mean, the, um I know it, if you're a, a are you a, a major league baseball fan? Huge. Yep. Okay. So perfect. Okay. So I'm sure you have heard, uh, I mean, maybe you've heard of this song, but everybody who's anybody that follows sports will all know about the 108 years the Cubs went without winning the world series, you know, right. uh, the curse, everything le- legitimate curse and all the, and even the years that they didn't make the world series, but there was a song that I found, you know, cause I was in university of Calgary at the time and when they won and there was a video reaction I watched of the Cubs winning. It's one of the biggest ones on YouTube. And it was playing a song written by a guy named Eddie Vetter, And it was called all the way live in Chicago. And I remember listening to it and watching and like, as, as any sports fan who loves a good story, especially for someone like yourself, who was all about stories, there was something that was so special about watching that video of Cubs fans reacting, like seeing people cry and like, they're saying like, grandpa, this was for you. And they're just like bringing almost a tear to your eye. And like, you know, it just, there's a big knot in your throat when you're watching it. And I was, I didn't even notice the song at first. And then all of a sudden I, I started to listen to the lyrics really closely and I start, I actually played the song and listened to all the lyrics after I'd watched that video, like a year later, I think. And I was listening to all the lyrics and kind of making analogies in my head to like how this could apply to the Winnipeg blue bombers. And like, and when I, you know, when I talked with my friends and when we were there and we at, when the time was ticking down and like, you don't like, even though we didn't, it it didn't last a hundred years, like that song, you know, all the way it almost felt like that's how it felt to be a Winnipeg fan. You know, and the opening line I think just really summarizes even just what we've been talking about. You know, don't let anyone say that it's just a game, and it's such a powerful song for anyone who who has the, has had the chance to listen, or for those who haven't, I suggest you do that. There's something in sports that is so so much more powerful than just just a game or just you know uh, points and winning and losing because you mentioned it in Brandon, right? When, um, mm-hmm. I think it was, I th- was it Hardrick or Bryant or what, uh, or in Thomas, the, the guys who had gone down with the, the trophy on the ice that even though it's an inanimate object, it is actually more than that. And there is a assigned meaning to it and seeing people like with 80 stuff or, you know, referencing their parents having passed or grandparents yeah. who didn't get to witness this. It's such a special thing that we get to be a part of, of, um, people being brought together, hugging in the streets or being friends with strangers because of just a group of 43 guys and a few people that leading them that got to be a part of winning this game. So as a sports fan, just even outside of your job, what does it mean to be a part of, you know, such a special tradition in Winnipeg, because we all talk about the Jets, how great they are and everyone loves hockey in Winnipeg, but I think the Bombers are really the team of Winnipeg and football is the main sport that people really love here
0: because of that tradition that has been built. So what does that really mean to you? Yeah, you get some d- debate on that from hockey fans, but you know, the, the Bombers have been around since 1930, right. And the jets basically the WHA day started in 72. They went away for a while. The Bombers have always been around. And, you know, so I think generations have grown up being fans what I found interesting about the the playoff run and then winning again is that a lot of people, they get frustrated with the franchise, right? You're a fan. And so when the team stinks, you kind of ask, screw those guys. I'm not going to follow them anymore, right? And and But when teams get good again, and I'm sure the Cubs fans were the same, it's like, wow, this is our club. Well, yeah, I'm a Cubs fan again, right? And so you've got your diehards. You've got your bandwagon jumpers. But that's, again, the beauty of sports. And you mentioned the Eddie Vedder song. I think we're all softies for this kind of stuff in a way, right? Like I, I'm the kind of guy that I still, I watch Rocky or I watch Rudy and there's still scenes where I bawl my eyes out. I don't know why I've seen the movie a thousand times, but I will. Um, um, And I think that's what I, I feel a a bit robbed this year with not having games, not having the bombers and even the, the jets playing their playoffs in a bubble. It's just not the same, right? That's why we're fans. You want to be there. Whether you're at the bar with your buddies, you know, watching the game on TV, or if you're live and in person, or in somebody's rec room, it's our teams, right? It's we're from Winnipeg, and we're cheering for our teams. I'm a huge Vikings fan, um, which has been real painful this year. But uh, when I watch the games, um, I'm still cheering. I'm still every down still matters to me. But it's not the same because it's it's the Minnesota Vikings. It's not it's not from my hometown. And I I think uh, if you've grown up being a fan of a team like so many of us have been, it's passed down to you from your parents or your older brothers or whatever. Um, When they win, it just got so much more meaning. And I I think that's what you're referencing with the Eddie Vedder song and uh, and the Cubs. You you could probably do the same thing with when the Red Sox broke their street too, right? Um, And as a guy that grew up a Montreal Expos fan, I still curse the the strike season that, that cost them the, a chance at the World Series or Blue Monday in 1980 when Rick Monday hit the home run in the playoffs. So, um, and I'm still cheering the Expos to come back to Montreal sometime, but that's why we're fans, right? We live, live for those kind of moments.
1: Absolutely. And and especially like the, the analogies to Major League Baseball, even within, you know, how much it means for Canadians and people talk about a few, like last week, the, the five year anniversary, the bat flip, like they didn't even get to the World Series, like, but that <laughs> moment is like a Canadian heritage moment, right? Like those commercials that they have, like the yeah. goose, like swing by the Canadian heritage moments, like, <laughs> and they talk about the bat flip, like just when he just, and then looks, yes. you know, like, you're like, oh my God, this is so exciting. and. Even like the Donaldson, when he, when he stole home and I think it was 2016, 2016, Mm -hmm. when he had that, that run against the Rangers, like everyone's like going crazy. And I'm like, man, like I can only imagine what it would have been like watching the Blue Jays win the world series, like Joe Carter's home run. Like people just must've been doing 720 backflips in, in the, in the Rogers center because people were doing this when Joey Bautista hit a home run that, that put them ahead in a series. Like that didn't win the world series, but that's
0: like. Baseball. what i find find interesting about that that whole thing is when the jays were on that run i was right in there with everybody else when the raptors won i mean i was hanging on every uh, basket or missed shot right but i think we have to be careful and i hate when people in, in the media in my business do this when they start talking about the blue jays being canada's team or you know, the, the Raptors being Canada's seems I don't know. I, like, yeah, people for, for the run were on the bandwagon and we're cheering about it. But look, um, there's Bombers fans, there's Riders fans, there's Jets fans, Canadians fans. You know, like people talk about the NHL and the Canadian team drought dating back to Montreal in 93. Look, I'm sorry. If you're a Montreal Canadiens fan and the Toronto Maple Leafs are in the final, the Stanley Cup final, and they have a, a chance to end the drought, if you're a canadian fan, you're not cheering for the maple Leafs. you're cheering for next year to hope that it's the canadians that end the drought so this this idea that um you know we're all jays fans the whole country's behind them sometimes i find that a bit over the top because uh deep down uh, we cheer for the teams that we grew up cheering for and, and yeah you can be a bandwagon jumper and and and, and dive in on that and those are big moments. What, like you said, when the Jays won the world series, when the Raptors won the NBA championship, those are big moments. But I think a lot of us go back to, well, I'm an Expos fan or I'm a Minnesota twins fan or I'm a whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, that's, I, I just, I had to get that off my chest, I guess. Of <laughs> I course, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Like, and honestly, like growing up my whole family, we were all Raptors fans because you know, when my parents watch basketball and there's, there was like, you know, Toronto and Vancouver. And when it's passed on to you, it it makes it kind of legit, even though we're not Torontonians, but you Mm -hmm. mentioned cheering, you know, cheering for the Expos growing up. Is it like, how do you, how do you handle like a situation like Montreal was in where they're no longer a team and where the speculation of their, you know, Renaissance is the same as the speculation of the Quebec Nordiques, right? Always the hopeful and always the faithful, but, I mean, you yeah. don't look at the Nationals and go, hooray, like they're doing well because that's that's not your team.
0: Yeah, so I became an Expos fan as a kid because there, it was before the Blue Jays were around, right? Because mm-hmm. that was Canada's only team. And then, uh, yeah, there's the heartbreak and them losing and then 93 when they lost, when the, the season got shut down. Uh, I'm clinging to the hope that there's this idea out there that they could have shared games with the Tampa Bay Rays um and and some of the home games would be played in montreal some in tampa which is really weird to me but when the expos first left and became the 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 nationals i went out and bought a washington nationals hat i said okay that's my club still i'm going to cheer for them i don't know where that hat is now because i replaced it with more expos hats that i've bought over the years because i can't cheer for the nationals when they want i can't that's not i know it's the same organization but it's not it's not the same and so um yeah I don't know it's uh I, I I guess there's varying degrees of fanhood I'm I guess I'm one of those ones that when I get it in my blood I, I'm it's hard for me to switch allegiances
1: yeah and and I think honestly even with like the Jets like I mean you've you covered them in their mm-hmm. return to the NHL but for many years did you feel like you were completely neutral to watching hockey because the Jets didn't Absolutely. exist
0: Absolutely, and that's even as a guy in the sports media business, right? I mean, when you go to a Jets game, you're not, or a Bombers game, you're not supposed to be cheering for the team. You, that's you, you're supposed to be impartial, right? And um, that's a hard thing to get your head wrapped around when you first become a, a beat guy. Like when I in '90, uh, when they said you're going to be the Bomber writer, I mean, I was a diehard Bomber fan. But then, if they lose, you've got to say that they lose, and they've got to say that they stink if they stink. You got to write that. So that's a hard thing to get your head wrapped around. But what you're right. When the when the Jets left in to to Arizona, you know there was the moose, and I, I watched hockey, but not with the same zeal that I used to. And I, part of it is because we were all mad, right? It was the business of hockey had taken the Jets away from Winnipeg, and when so when they came back again, the the return and that first game against Montreal at the uh, at downtown here is that's one of those moments that's going to stick for me because it was something that nobody thought would ever happen. Again, you mentioned the Nordiques fans, they'll experience the same thing if it happens for them. And I sure hope it does that when a team, the team comes back, that first game, that first season is going to be unbelievable. And I, for the life of me, I think it's great that they've gone to Seattle, but I cannot believe that the NHL has not gone back to Quebec.
1: Yeah. Honestly, I've talked about the, with my dad, tons of times and even like, even within the scope of the CFL, like here, here's an idea. Do you think that the 10th team in the CFL would be better fit if they were in Quebec city in comparison to Atlanta, Canada?
0: It's a great question. It's been brought up before many times, and it, it would be a great market. I like the idea of Halifax just because it would be a, you know, the coast to coast thing. And I think the Maritimes would really embrace it. But um, the one conflict with going to Quebec city is that I don't think a lot of us really know how big Laval football is until you've been there, and Laval football rules, and so it's hard to imagine both coexisting right now because Laval football, well, it's basically like a pro team, right? They, mm-hmm. they, the way they're they're run that 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 program is almost like a, a sports franchise. Is there a way for them to coexist? Probably. It's a great football market. Laval's proven that. Maybe that's the 11th franchise. I would love to see them uh, get uh, a team in, in addition to Halifax having one too. And then maybe you could put another one out here in the West somewhere. Some people have talked about Saskatoon being a market. It's hard to imagine two teams in Saskatchewan, but um, you know, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, I work in this league now and this league's got some problems. It's got to figure out and it's biggest markets before they really start to, to look at expansion let's get toronto and montreal and vancouver fixed too
1: yeah and i know that it's really hard in the cfl because as a diehard fan or even as a beat reporter you look at some of the places in the cfl where it seems that there's a a bit of a lackluster fanfare around the teams and you're like hey man like this is this is a long-standing tradition like the toronto argonauts uh, the toronto argonauts are are no you know they're no doorknobs like they're a long-standing you know very you know a storied team within the city and have existed for many, 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 many years. And it seems that you're off to find more people confused with NFL jerseys at Argo games and away fans than you are to find people that really cheer for the Argos. And I know that uh, I had I was fortunate to have an interview with, uh, with Jim Barker for Right. For, for another website that, uh, that I do work for. And, we're, and they were talking about or what he was telling me was, you know, it's like when I was a part of the Argos, when they won in 97, like that was back when it was cool to cheer for Toronto. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and, and it only, only seems like it's a, you know, fair weather. It's like the BC Lions. Like, I think the Lions have a better fan base than the Argos. But when they're good, everyone's, you know, raving about the Lions. But then when they're not, it's like, ah, oh, whatever, who cares about them? And I think that's one of the things that's a bit unfortunate about other CFL cities is that they become so encapsulated by NHL and obviously in Toronto by the Raptors and by the Blue Jays that sometimes people forget, like, hey, the CFL, the Great Cup's been around longer than all these leagues.
0: And yeah, I think it's it, like it's sad. It I think the Argos are actually officially, and you could look this up, are the the oldest oldest professional sports franchise in North America, um, but I could be wrong there, so don't hold it against me. But I've been, you know, I've been going to Toronto for Bomber games since 1990, and over the years, that there's the spikes of attendance have been very few where the attendance is up and where the, where the interest is up. It's a shame because uh, as an older fan of this league. You know, you go back into the 70s and uh, when they played at uh, Exhibition Stadium, they were getting 30,000, 40,000 people to their games. And then it's just slowly eroded over time. And, you know, the Raptors are cool and uh, the Toronto FC is cool. Um, the Blue Jays had their success. The Leafs are always going to rule. Um, you know, it, they've just fallen further and further down the pecking order. I trust some of the people that are there like Pinball Clements to get it right again. But, you um, they just got to make it trendy and, and cool to be in the park again. I, I, they'll figure out a way, but uh, for someone like me, that's been going there for, I guess, more or less 30 years. it We've been having this discussion for three decades about why aren't people on board in Toronto? You know, it's a slow build, I guess, to get it back, but uh, they got some work to do.
1: Yeah. And I know that having watched the, the TSN feature that they did with with John Candy owning the Argos in '91, mm-hmm. and how special that was, and that was great. was played in Winnipeg when they won too. You know the right. the um, the beer can being thrown on the field, and yeah. you know such an iconic moment. But I really wish that there was a bit more investment in the CFL league wide, and especially with Canadian talent and players, because I, I enjoy the CFL expanding their horizons to international. Uh, international borders but when you look at U sports i think that having more players who are making a bigger impact in their local towns for cfl teams or within the country is better for the league than trying to expand too far to places where people don't even know about football because quite honestly if they find out about the nfl like it'll be way easier for them to be won over by that than the mm-hmm. cfl because we got such a special niche so how do you look at the way in which the CFL has developed Canadian talents regarding their U sports connection.
0: Yeah, there's, I'm one of those guys like you that wants to watch. We talked about Demski and Andrew Harris earlier. I like it when there's university of Manitoba guys on the bombers, or I follow those guys when they're on other teams, you know? Um, I think it's important that the Saskatchewan Rough Riders have guys from the Regina Rams and Saskatoon or Saskatchewan Huskies that, there's guys from Guelph on the Tiger cats that there's guys from York. I think it's important to all the Quebec guys that are playing for Montreal. I think they've got to grow that a little bit more. And, you know, the the league now with the the season being shut down, I think has a chance to not recreate itself, but re, to, to look at things again and and maybe see where they can win back some fans. And I've heard what you've said from a lot of people that let's, instead of expanding our horizons and, and trying to glow the, grow the game globally. Let's, let's grow it here in Canada first and see what that can do. And, and now there's a lot of fans that don't think that way, that don't care whether the fan, the, the player that's catching the touchdown passes from Winnipeg or Canton, Mississippi, like Darvin Adams, they just, they just want to see football. But I think for a lot of us, that's what makes it unique this game is that uh, if I want to watch guys from anywhere I'll watch the NFL but if I want to watch guys from my hometown then I'll watch the Bombers play and I think we're seeing more and more Canadians starring down in the states but I think that uh, you got to grow the game here in Canada and and then maybe that's the way to kind of get the fan back is that you've got some of your buddies from the U of T are, are playing on, for the Argos at, on Sunday and then maybe you're going to go to the game and that's how you can grow it back. Yeah. And, and like you mentioned, the
1: Canadians doing well in the NFL with obviously the, you know, very famous chase Claypool, who's, yes. who started to really blow up. And I find it interesting with how well he's done because when I was playing for the Vancouver on Raiders in 2015, Guys were talking about, you know, the the Barsby Bulldogs in Nanaimo, like, oh, they lost this playoff game to the some just some dusty team from Abbotsford, but they just so happen to have this amazing guy that was probably gonna go to the CFLs. Like, oh, what's his name? And like Chase Claypool. I was like, Oh, huh. weird. Huh. I, and I just I just heard that he was amazing. And then all of a sudden I was like kind of following, you know, indirectly. I was like, Oh, he's on Notre Dame, like you know, but like how many Canadians end up being like significant starters or whatever. And then watching the first game that they played of the year, I was like oh, wow, like
0: this is the real deal. Yeah, he's the real deal. Some people were saying yesterday when he scored again that he might, you know, he should start engraving the Rookie of the Year trophy already with his name on it because uh, he's having that kind of an impact with Pittsburgh. Uh, It's So that's the thing that's the big uh, kind of dilemma for the the CFL now is that more and more Canadian kids are are playing in the NCAA and starring and then making it – to the NFL than ever before. Um, let's celebrate them and then let's give other Canadians more of an opportunity in the CFL too. It's the same kind of concept that the CPL is, the Canadian Premier League, is that it's you need to have a domestic league for Canadians to shine. Well, that's what the CFL is for, for Canadian football players too.
1: Yeah, and and the, CF, the CPL is a great opportunity and, and it's good that you mentioned that because I remember I was involved with the soccer community right from when I was a kid with refereeing and playing and seeing some jerseys and these weird looking logos of it said Winnipeg Fury. I'm like, what's that? And I remember my dad Mm -hmm. telling me about, you know, there used to be a team here and there was a league, but it was kind of like trying to build a ladder to climb over a wall at a toothpicks, right? Like there was a instability and not a strong foundation, but now, especially you've been immersed in the environment with Valor. What have you seen from the resurgence of professional soccer in Canada from what it once was when they had Winnipeg Fury in that division.
0: Yeah. It's very, it's interesting because, uh, so I started at the sun in 87 a year after Canada had made its only appearance in the world cup. And that's part of why the Canadian soccer league at the time was thought that it was going to put down some roots because there was momentum from the, the national team being at Mexico in the world cup. And My first ever beat was actually covering the Winnipeg Fury. They called me in the office and said, uh, do you know anything about soccer? And I lied and said, oh, yeah. And so they gave me the the soccer uh, beat, which I had to learn in a hurry. But that team, even in its second year, I believe, had David Norman, who was on Canada's national team on the World Cup in 86. And it was a real struggle um, to grow the game in this market, but across The Canadian Soccer League at the time, Um, and it it lasted for a a lot longer than people thought. And when it disappeared, I thought, well, that's too bad. And you know, I didn't think it was going to survive anyway. It had lasted longer than it than I thought. And then when you know, over time, I think the women's team had a lot to do with this, this their success. Um, The MLS expanding into Canada had a lot to do with it, and then. To see it now, I think this thing's going to work. I really do. I know that the CPL had its doubters when it first started. Um, I think playing the island games and PEI was really important to, to keep it in the, the in the mainstream and, and people's consciousness. Uh, I, I think it's going to work because um, they've, they've got the right kind of business model. Um, the idea of developing younger Canadians and that you're not just going to stockpile your your team with guys, some rejects, some other teams, they've got to have a certain number of Canadians. I think it's going to work. And it's been fun to see them put it into, into practice. And that first Valor game uh, last year when there were over 10,000 people in uh, at investors group field, I think there's more of that to come with this team down in the future. Hopefully we can get through this stupid thing we're going through now with the, with COVID-19 and we can get fans back in the stands, but I give them a lot of credit. They put down some, some pretty good roots here.
1: Absolutely. And I would definitely have to agree. And especially being involved in the soccer community still pretty heavily. It's really good to see that the game is starting to, to establish some deeper roots because you talk about the fury and that was, I think, a thing that people held onto Winnipeg for a long time who were older in the community, because that was their, it almost seemed like a shot at, uh, you know, their one shot at glory or one Mm -hmm. chance, because for anyone that's a soccer fan out there, who knows, Canada has only made the World cup voluntarily one time in 86, like you mentioned didn't score any goals and lost every game. So when they make it again in 2026 out of automatic entry because of being a host, I think that has to be a prime chance for them to really establish even deep roots for the game in this country. Because you look at the success that Alfonso Davies is having and some of the other players on the men's national team, it's starting to come together if we allow it to come together. Because the CPL needs to do its part in developing Canadians, and also there needs to be part done on. Th- the side of the national team to really continue to foster the success that players have who are already playing in Europe, like Davies or those guys who would not come play in the CPL, but the women's have the women's team have led the way. But I think with the way that the women's game is going, it's starting to grow so much that Canada doesn't have an automatic advantage anymore, just because the other countries don't allow women to play soccer. You know, before it was just Brazil, USA, China, and Canada, and Japan, and maybe a few, and Germany. And now, like, you know, Portugal's starting to get soccer, you know, bigger for women. Spain, Argentina, Sweden, England. Like, this isn't just, you know, a a first world country thing anymore that's, like, even secluded within that circle. So there needs to be a bit of a, a teamwork done. And so with the future of soccer and how you've watched, I guess, from, from faking your way into a position and now having followed soccer for a long time, do you really think that Canada will be able to have soccer surpass any other sports that are of importance in this country? Do you think it'll always take a a third spot to like football and hockey?
0: Um, Probably not in my lifetime, but maybe in yours, I could see soccer surpass. Like, I don't think it's ever going to pass hockey, but it's, I think it's, the popularity is going to surge and you know you you talk about the upcoming world cup the, the automatic birth they, they had 86 team you know it, it was amazing that they made it there that they had qualified and i can still remember i think they lost to france for nothing in that tournament and the possession numbers i don't know what they tracked that back then but they would have been like if if Canada had the ball on its foot for seven percent of the game, I would have been shocked because it was just so one-sided. And so you're watching that and you're thinking, "This is horrible. This is the grand stage, and this is our national team. We, like we we look don't look like we could beat, you know, um, USSR. Like yeah, they yeah, could anybody. Yeah, we couldn't beat anybody. So I think that's why when, when the next birth comes, you mentioned the you know. Um, Alfonso Davies and all these guys like our national team going to be decent then And I think that if they have a real good showing and, and farewell and don't lose four nothing to France and never have the ball um, then I think that helps grow the game too right and so there's a again another opportunity and if, if the CPL by that time has put down even firmer roots and maybe the guy from this league can make it up to being on that team I you know that's maybe a, I'm fast tracking things too much but Maybe he's a reserve. Maybe he's on the, you know, gets an invite to the camp. Uh, I think that's only going to help grow the game, grow the league and then grow the, the game too. It's um, look, it, it is. You mentioned the women's team, which is an interesting analogy and in how other countries have caught up and there's not this advantage anymore. Compare that to women's hockey, right? It's still the same. It's still, Canada and the U S once in a while, Finland might upset somebody in women's hockey. The the other countries haven't caught up, but in women's soccer, there's so many teams, so many countries that can win it now because it is the world's game. Right. And that's the difference between soccer and hockey. And that's why I wonder, you know, 50 years from now, uh, I, I really wonder what kind of crowds would be at IG field if it's still around for a Valor game, if they're still around. And I think they will be.
1: Yeah, it is. It is interesting to note the hockey, uh, the gap that still exists in skill between other countries, because Canada and the U S have such a huge advantage as to how important the game is to them. And obviously the U S just being a behemoth of sports and having the resources to just throw out hockey, even though it doesn't seem like people really care about it there as much as they do here. But I don't know. I, I find that Canada I don't think that you know our population size is an excuse for for the the way in which they're good at soccer. We're, you know, you look at a country like Iceland, what they did at the Euro and at the World Cup. Like a country where literally every single person left over from all the jobs and all the demographics of people left are playing soccer. Those are the only ones that could, and they made it to the Euro quarterfinals. Like even though they obviously got smoked by France, like they still scored two goals and they they made it look like a decent showing and at the world cup, you know, making it to a tie against Argentina, like for a country that's small, that's half the population size, less than half the population size of Winnipeg. If a country like that's as small as Iceland can do that, there's no excuse for Canada. There's absolutely it's none.
0: Great, it's a great analogy and it's, it's true. And it's, uh, I, I love cheering for the underdogs. That's why I, 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 uh, I have an Iceland t-shirt in my, uh, of all my T-shirts, because I—I I mean, they're—they're they're easy to cheer for, right? And it's—it's it's a cool story. Um, I don't—you're right. I don't think the population matters sometimes, because if that's the case, then China would win everything, right? Because it's yeah. the biggest country on earth. So, um, again, that's part of why we like sports for the stories like Iceland. And uh, I mean, wouldn't it be great if uh, when Canada gets the World Cup again, uh, our men's team? could, could pull off an upset. I mean, let's face it. If no matter who they, if they were to draw against somebody, it would be dancing in the streets. Right. And that could mean so much for the, for this country and the growth of the game.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is a great sport to watch. And I honestly think that, you know, watching the power that it has over people from other countries or countries that are smaller or the, where this is all they got, like, we, we are one in the same with, you know, how, how we treat the CFL in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan versus how people treat soccer in Brazil, right? Like the magnitude of how much other people watch it doesn't have to matter. It just matters how we treat it domestically. Right.
0: Yeah. It's, it still uh, amazes me. We, we talk about the level of fandom that, you know, you mentioned rider and bomber fans. I talked earlier about Canadian fans or Maple Leafs fans and we're all passionate, but I don't think anybody can compare to some of the soccer fan bases because it's a uh, win or lose, they're either celebrating or it they're, you know suicidal. It's it's sad that it's that that it's that extreme, but that's that's the level of, of, of fandom. You know, during the uh the pandemic here, uh I watched I don't know if you've watched on Netflix that Sunderland till I die if you have a chance it's a it's a really good inside look at Sunderland and and them falling out of the Premier League and um and and their their trials and tribulations it's a real good inside look at a team but you know that's a level of fandom that that is pretty special and and that that happens with every team in soccer and that's what I think is really cool about it and I think I see I, I see it growing to some degree with Valor. It's just going to take a long time to to grow it to that level, but man, it's fun.
1: Absolutely. And I think that on the flip side of you mentioned Sunderland Leeds United experienced, you know, this the the reverse of what Sunderland experienced. Leeds hadn't been in the Premier League since well, 0304 and then just made it this last season and and I remember right. watching a video on YouTube of them talking about how big it was and, you know, Leeds is not a not a nobody club, but like they're, they have a lot of history too. Um, right. And it's those moments like the Leicester winning for the first time in their existence and all this, all the like, and I think that's what makes soccer even better is because you're not even guaranteed to be guaranteed to be in the highest division anyways. And then you make it there and then you win it all against all the odds when the literally there's no competitive balance. And if you're not the richest team, you're basically, you know, out of luck.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool if we could take that concept and, of the champions league or something like that. And you could apply it to three down football where the bombers now have to, to play somebody in the NFL or, a, you know, a team from Germany or Finland that plays three down football or American football, so to speak, has to play the bombers in a qualifier to move on to the next round. I think that'd be kind of cool. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but uh, that might be one way to grow the game too.
1: Absolutely. I'm, off, I'm
0: off on a tangent there. Sorry. No, no, for sure. And that's, that's a great,
1: that's a great tangent though, because, you know, thinking about how do we reinvent the game? Like you look at soccer, why is it so popular? And Why do people inject it into their veins and it lives in their bloodstream because of the number of ways in which their teams can compete and the number of ways Mm. in which there is competitive bounds, right? In the FA Cup, like Bury can win a game against a team from, you know, the first or second division because anything can happen in the FA Cup, especially that tournament, right? Or in Brazil, you know, that sometimes, uh, you know, a team from the second or third division will will shock. Or even, like, going off on the Brazil tangent, like, where, you know, half of my family's from, in the 90s until, you know, all the Brazilian teams started to be rid of all their good players. You know, Vasco da Gama, like, who's a famous Portuguese explorer, the club's name Mm -hmm. after, they ended up winning a game against Manchester United in the, in the semifinal of the club world cup, like a team with David Beckham and, you know, all these amazing legendary, you know, forever enshrined British players. And a lot of people nowadays would be like, Oh, teams from Brazil suck. But it's like, Hey man, like they can still, you know, right. Punch above their, um, above their pay grade. So it's, And you never know what the CFL, right? People would say, oh, in the NFL, they're world champions. How do you know? You you haven't played somebody from another country. You haven't played somebody in another style of football. So there's no actual way that you can say that you're world champions.
0: Yeah. It's the same idea with the world baseball classic, right? Because they always talk about how the major league baseball is the world series or the world champs. Well, what about the the team from that won the Japanese league? Maybe they ought ought to have a shot at you. And I don't know. I think it'd be really cool if we could ex- extrapolate that to the, the football level, the CFL, American football level. And I would rather, um, as part of this process, if it meant that the bombers kicked the crap out of a team from Finland and then lost to an NFL team, it would still be cool to, to be part of that and, and to see it. Right. Um, I don't know. I'm, again, I'm kind of spitballing ideas as we're talking here, but, uh, uh, it's because we're a fan and, and, and our level of fandom is pretty, runs pretty deep. I I'd, I'd be open for that idea because soccer has made it work so well.
1: Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. So Ed, we're, we're getting towards the end of our time here. So we want to wrap up. I want to wrap up with one more question before sure. we finish today's episode. So amongst all the ups and downs, you've, you've seen it all. Almost, I guess there's still a bit, some, you know, unknown stories to see, but, Of all the games you've covered with the Bombers, you know, because obviously the great couple reign is number one for one of the greatest or all the great couple wins are some of the greatest, but what has to be one of the strangest games you've covered, whether it ended in a win or a loss. And what was it like being involved
0: in said game? Well, the one that instantly jumps to mind is the Dunnigan 713 game. And there's a couple, but that's one I'll start with because, um, like you don't sit down in the press box thinking that on that night, something magical or historic is going to happen, right? You're just, you're there to cover a football game. And what was interesting about that game is that the stats, uh, back then in 94 aren't compiled the same way they are now. It's not live. You back then you'd have to, I still do this to this day, but I'll turn around to the guys behind me and say, you know, uh, What's uh, Andrew Harris at, or what's uh, how many sacks has Willie got, right? And the, the, because they're the official voice. But so in, in that Dunigan game, he's piling up the numbers, but we're not really tracking it. And I can remember Ed Willis, who was a great columnist at the time. He was with the Winnipeg Sun with me, and he's just retired from the Vancouver province, one of this country's great writers. Um, he was writing, he was going to write his column on Alfred Jackson because Jackson had four touchdowns and had broken the the record for receiving yards and and then it wasn't until late that we realized wait a minute I think Dunnigan broke Danny Barrett's record and and the numbers just kept piling up and then again because everything wasn't so immediate as it is now it didn't dawn on a lot of us even until the next day that wow that 713 that's incredible uh, and so that's a game that stands out for me and another one that I reference because it's it's kind of funny now in hindsight, but it wasn't at the time was the, the, the game that uh, Milt Stegall caught the hundred yard pass. So it's in Edmonton. I'm writing for the free press. I'm on, you're on deadline. So it's one of those ones where the game ends, you got to hit send. You've got to file your story as soon as the result is in, because they're holding the paper for you before it can go to press. And so the bombers were, Crapping that game away. They had a had a lead and then it looked like they were going to lose. And so I'm writing about how they stink and how they you know, they've crapped the bed and lost this game. And then on the last play of the game, there's a hundred-yard touchdown pass to the greatest receiver in, in CFL history. And the reaction in the press box isn't, wow, that's unbelievable. That's spectacular. There's all kinds of curses people are firing F-bombs left and right because you got to rewrite your story in two seconds. Right. And so those, those are the things that I remember too, for, for different reasons, probably purely selfish because it was a great moment. But when you're sitting at your laptop and you've got to write a 700 word story on a game that just changed on the last play um, it's, it's a big time stress. So, I mean, I look, I've been, I've been fortunate to cover a lot of, uh, wonderful moments in all kinds of sports here in Winnipeg and got to do the Olympics and got to cover a, a Mike Tyson fight in Vegas where he bit Vander Holyfield's ear off. And I've done a lot of wild things, been to Finland for junior hockey. Um, but again, writing about return of the jets or writing about bomber uh, great cup wins has meant the most to me, I guess, because, uh, because it means the most to Winnipeggers. Of course, and I don't think
1: that there would be a better way that you could cap that off. Especially because I was going to mention on the episode that I had had with Brett. He talked about why Matt Dunigan did what he did in that game, and I never understood this before when I was watching. Is because he said, you know, they lost the Great Cup in mm-hmm. in ninety three three ninety three was to Edmonton because ninety two was Calgary with Floaty. So ninety three right. they lost to Edmonton because they, you know, Dunigan got he got he got hurt, he hurt. and yeah. then um when the backup had to go in and then that was when you know they they could have would have should have and they didn't yeah. and then he's like okay he's like now we're gonna treat this like that's what would have happened in the great cop and they're like you know let it ride don't pull any punches just keep going keep going and and honestly I, I think there was an interview I watched on YouTube of of Matt Dunning and talking with Gord Miller and he's just kind of sitting there like oh yeah you know we just kind of we just you know we were clicking and it was all working and you know, guys were saying like, man, if there was a few incompletions, if he didn't have those, like he could have been up to 800. And right, and that's why like, you know, it's so awesome to hear that context because as a fan, you're like, wow, great record. But it's like, hey, you know, they treated out like the great cup that they didn't get to do. And they acted like that's where they got their great cup rings. Right. And then even with the, the Milt Stegall 100 yards, that game, it was 10 years since they'd won uh, until they won Edmonton after that game. And the game that they did was Matt Nichols' first game as a starter that right. really initiated the next era when Drew Willie really threw that last pick six, the last that Winnipeg ever saw of him, things changed around Winnipeg. And that's why I remember listening to that game on CGOB when I was at work because it is now ingrained in my mind as the moment that started to build towards the 2019 Great Cup. So even though I can only imagine, you know, in journalism school, they teach you, all right, you know, you got to be ready to hit send like 30 yeah. seconds after the game's done. And everyone's like jubilation in the field and Doug Barry, like him doing the, like the, you know, yes. go, 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 go. And then you're sitting there and you're like, oh my God, like what just happened? And everyone's like freaking out, not because they're happy, because they have to rewrite everything they just did. And that, and I find it interesting that I didn't, I was like, I'm not going to be honest. I didn't know what kind of answer you were going to give with strange games. But when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that makes tons of sense to yeah. redo everything you just did in 30 seconds because of something that is actually good for the bombers is just so ironic. I couldn't even imagine how it would have felt to have been in
0: the press box. I I can still remember. I'm sorry. I'm going on here, but I can still remember how I tried to fix that story. So the bottom two thirds of it are all about how the bombers struggled and, you know, were crapping away this game, but the top of it, because of that one play, I just had to come up with something instantly and I I'm paraphrasing here, but, My lead was something like, uh, um, let it be said for now and forever that uh, Milt Stiegel is the greatest receiver in Canadian football history, write it in in ink, not in pencil. And then the rest is about how the Bombers almost lost this game. So it was one of those stories where in the moment you got to adapt and improvise, but the real, uh, the best part of that story was told by everybody the day after, because that's when you could uh, get down and talk to Milton and, and do a little bit more research about how it had happened. But in the moment, you're almost afraid to put your name at the top of that story because when people crack open the paper, the next day, they're going to read what I think was a pretty cool intro. And then the rest of it's going to be, what the hell is this? <laughs> because it reads like a loss, but, um, I don't know. I, like I, I said, I'm, uh, I've been lucky to do this for so long and, and, um, uh, but those are the ones that jump out there's been a lot of fun ones a lot of games where I, I probably can't remember but uh those are two that jump out for me i
1: i well, i couldn't have even said them better myself and honestly you know book it sign it right now take a picture you know send it to the hall that milt is the greatest cfl receiver right. you know unbelievable games unbelievable catches unbelievable performances but to top it all off and to quote exactly what he said in the in the top 10 countdown of crazy or best CFL plays, you know, that's not just the best play in CFL history, but football history.
0: <laughs> that's Milt for you right there. He's never shy.
1: <laughs> well, Ed, I want to thank you so much for having been on today's episode. It was absolutely fantastic. I really loved every moment of it because I love the Bombers and I love talking Winnipeg sports.
0: I uh, appreciate you having me on. It was fun for me too. A lot. It was really a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. Well, everyone, thank you again for listening to Episode 21 with Senior Writer and
1: Reporter of the Winnipeg Football Club, Ed Tate. Here we go, here we go. Tonight! Easy, Ball. easy! In the go. Kill, kill! Ball. Blame, lane. Moves to the right, it goes directly to Clement. Clement reverses it. Nick Foles! a touchdown by Nick
0: Foles! Let's
1: go! Let's go! Oh. Everything today. Hey, let's go, big Catch them and throw them. Let's go. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Huddle Up. Make sure to follow on social media, at Huddle Up Podcast on Instagram, and on YouTube, at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Let's make sure to execute this week, and I'll see you next time.